Live from the Great White North, this is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Today is November 3rd. My name is Braden Dennis at Bredo Capital and always joined by Simon Belanger at Fiat underscore iceberg on Twitter. And you can follow our Twitter account for the podcast at CDN underscore investing if you have an account there. And and if not, then you can just keep listening to the podcast here. But Simon, how are we doing? We got some fun ones today. We got some listener questions that we're going to finish the show with. What do we got? Four or five listener questions here. And I can kick it off here with another topic that I'll get into here. But you know, what's funny is looking here on the notes and we're talking about Sony, a question we got earlier was about Sony, the stock, and we're both wearing Sony headphones right now. And you just bought a Sony TV and we're like, yeah, I don't love the stock, (laughs) (laughs) but that just goes to show you, you can't always be waiting on anecdotal evidence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it was an interesting question and we'll give our take. But uh, yeah, I think Sony, it's kind of a mixed bag, just a preview of what we'll say. But we've got a few other interesting segments and then those listener questions, which we always love to do. Let me kick it off here with something I dug up from 1993. You might know from the podcast listening about Chuck Ager, Ager Capital Management is a fund and and Acre has had tremendous success managing money for shareholders. So I pulled something out from a letter he wrote from 1993. And I just wanted to highlight some things here because this is truly a quality basket of companies. He tries to own really, really high quality wide moat businesses and hold them for the long term. And so these are some interesting things that he talks about now in 2021, yet has been talking about them since 1993. And it just goes back down to owning good companies and holding them for the long term yields fantastic results. And while the businesses may change from time to time, but you know, the, the businesses that dominate today in 2021 and the businesses that dominate in 1993 are different, yet he has a the same investing framework over these multiple of decades and it's yielded fantastic results. So he goes, these businesses possess some type of franchise that enable them to have reduced or diminished competition. This power sometimes in pricing, sometimes in brand names, sometimes in exclusivity, properly used can further strengthen the business and enhance, even perpetuate, their high returns on an owner's investment. Among the characteristics of these outstanding businesses I look for are, and he has nine things listed here, I'll go through them. Number one, earn high returns on capital. Number two, are understandable to us. It's an important one. Three, see profits in cash, not mere accounting conventions. So even back to 1993, Acre was saying accounting profits, like net income, not useful to me. I want to know free cash flow. And this is why we talk about free cash flow so much. And it's been so important for every manager as of late. But the smart ones are recognizing that there are issues with accounting many decades ago. 
Number four, have freedom to price in brackets, raise prices. How often do we talk about that? Number five, don't need a genius to manage. That's a very Warren Buffett style one where you don't need a genius to manage the business because eventually someone may not be a genius managing it and you still want to be rewarded as a shareholder. It just speaks to it's such a good business that it doesn't necessarily rely on an expert CEO. Number six, have reasonably predictable earnings, some stability to their earnings. Number seven, are not natural targets of regulation. Simon, we talked about that on the last episode. Owning companies that are targets for regulation is is tricky and, and something that affects oil and gas stocks. It affects our investment in Tencent and the market is going to price it as such. Number eight, require little capital investment. And number nine, have shareholders-oriented management. So they're treating shareholders and trying to earn a decent return for them. So the reason I bring up this list is if you're an investor looking to buy and hold wonderful companies like some of the best investors of all time, it is helpful to develop a framework like this. Now, that framework can be improved over time and, and what you write today may not be what you have in five years. But what's really key here is that in 1993, Chuck still said that he was looking for businesses that meet these exact criteria. The fundamentals of competitive advantages have been the same for a long time. Even if the businesses that make up the market today have changed in a major way, this list of nine things is going to work in every single market because there are strong business characteristics like profits, high returns on capital, understandable to the investor, has the ability to raise prices. These kinds of things are timeless. So almost 30 years later, still investing with this framework and the results have been outstanding. So I've developed a framework and I use it and it's kind of a checklist type thing. Talked about it many times on this podcast. Maybe I'll talk about it again next episode. And I think establishing a framework is is a helpful and useful exercise to think about the businesses that you want to own, not just tomorrow, not just next week, but in many years down the road. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really good framework and it's astonishing how it can still be applied quite well today. The only thing I probably would think that I would add to that framework is the uh, companies that actually treat their employees well, because we've seen companies that do that and tend to perform quite well when they treat their employee wells. But this type, you know, not having that in 1993, there was a lot more focus on, you know, bring shareholder value back then. Uh, there still is, but I think it's evolved a little bit over time. But everything else, I think, you know, we've talked about free cash flow over and over. And I still get amazed how major media outlets like CNBC, for example, still only basically talk about earnings or earnings per share. There's still not much mention of free cash flow when the, those news headlines come out. It's because when the news headline comes out, they have to actually do some calculations <laughs> on free cash flow unless it's in the press release. But that's for another discussion. You know, it's a good point, right? It's the earnings and profits has been the easy one to put on a headline. But at the end of the day, the actual free cash flow that the business is generating over time is what determines its intrinsic value from a long-term perspective. Okay, let's switch gears to another one here before we get into the, the mailbag questions, which is, I got an email from a longtime podcast supporter and Stratosphere member. His name's Raf. 
Great guy. And he brought up a topic for the show that we can go back and forth on here. And I got some notes on as well, which is something that everyone battles with, Simon. Whether you are a new or experienced investor, this is something that you face. And this is around price anchoring. Okay. So for both buying and selling, price anchoring is a behavioral investing psychology thing at play. So let's talk about both of them. This is a concept around selling winners and buying losers is like cutting the flowers and watering the weeds. So let's talk first about price anchoring on your cost basis on a losing stock. So this is when a stock you own is down tremendously and you're waiting, like arbitrarily waiting for the price to come back to what you paid. It is important to remember that you are trying to earn a good return on your capital from this very second onwards. And if the stock is something you wouldn't dare put fresh money into now, because this company is junk, it's lost its edge, or your investment thesis was just plain wrong, it's probably best to move on and cut your losses. Now, that cash is probably used better elsewhere. There's probably better opportunities. Now, if the company is actually great and the business results are solid and the share price is hurting, then that may be an opportunity. But if the real business fundamentals are slipping, waiting for the share price to arbitrarily recover to a price that you paid is living in la-la fairy tale land. It's an investing psychology nightmare and should frankly be avoided at all costs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Simon, what do you think about price anchoring on yeah, losers? Yeah, I think it's just human nature. And I think you have to recognize when you're doing it yourself for a company that you own. And it's very easy to look and have these arbitrary price points that you have, whether it's making back your investment, just breaking even, whether it's selling once you 2x because you have that in your mind for no apparent reason. I think it's something that everyone kind of struggles with uh, sooner or later. It's especially true, right? If you've thought about buying a company, but you're like, oh, you know, I, I'll buy it, but I want to buy it $100 a share. And then you look back three years later, it's $300 a share, right? So I think that can happen and you won't want to pull the trigger because now it's 300 You could have had it at 110 that type of mentality. It's really important to look at things where they are at right now. The market doesn't care what price you paid for the company. What really matters is it what price it is trading right now, what the valuation is, what the future prospects is. And if you sell that investment at a loss, at the end of the day, it's not the end of the world if you can take that money, like Braden said, just putting it in another investment and get better returns there. I guess you have to be ruthless when it comes to that and really take out your emotions completely out of it and really look at it from an objective matter. I know it's really easier said than done, but that can also apply for real estate. I've heard a lot of people that want to buy a certain home. They have a price in mind. The seller doesn't want to sell it to them. And then a year or two later, they realize that the market's gone up 10 or 15%. Uh, I'm not saying pulling the trigger at all costs to buy real estate. That's not what I'm saying. But people tend to have a price in mind. And you can flip it around for real estate as well. When you're selling a home, you may have a price in mind. And the market's telling you that it's not worth that. And you're being stubborn on it. And then same thing can happen a few years later. You know, maybe you get your price, but the extra cost that you incurred actually makes it a losing proposition. It is a behavioral 
problem that should just be avoided. And and what you're talking about is is price anchoring also to cost basis is on a winner, mm-hmm. right? Which is it can be difficult to add to winners just like it can be difficult to sell losers. So this is part two, which is price anchoring. Before we're talking about price anchoring on losers, there's also price anchoring on winners. Now, look, if the business you own, the stock you own is getting better and the share price keeps winning, if it trades at all-time highs, it absolutely should trade at all-time highs. The business has gotten better over time. You made a great investment. Your thesis played out and sometimes that great investment deserves some more fresh capital. I have added to winners after 5Xing my initial investment. The stock has earned my conviction over time and potentially opened up new optionality for growth. And it commands more weighting. It's one more weighting in my portfolio. And sometimes it deserves more fresh capital because your best idea, very often your best idea is something that you already own. And that's why adding to winners that have had such run-ups, but the optionality has improved, they've gained more market share, the brand has improved, they've flexed all the correct things about your investment thesis, and the runway for growth remains large. Maybe you've even got some multiple expansion that you're hoping for. Given all those things, sometimes a position demands more fresh capital if you're investing more yeah, money. And it's counterintuitive because sometimes, you know, if an investment, a stock will have performed so well for you. And like you said, you know, you might be up two, three, four, five times on the stock. While when you look at the business now, even considering that it's much more expensive to buy one share just on a dollar basis, the company might actually be cheaper than when you initially purchase the investment based on your initial growth thesis. Maybe the growth is accelerating. That's why it's trading at such a premium. And I know you've been a big proponent of that for the, uh, I don't know, FAGMA or whatever acronym you use, the, the FANGs or you include them all or with Facebook, I'm not sure what their new name, the, what it'll be. But <laughs> yeah, MAGMA, I yeah. think is what people the, are proposing. The new MAGMA. So I know you've been a big proponent where, yes, they have had huge run-ups, but a lot of them still have huge runways for growth. So you can make a case that they're probably trading even cheaper than they have at some point in time in the past five, six, ten years. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great example. I think that's a perfect example where some of these things on a risk reward basis moving forward have gotten cheaper over time, even though their share price might trade at all time highs. The risk reward moving forward, not only have they widened their moat, they've generated an absurd amount of cash, have a rock solid defensible balance sheet. Yeah, the share price might be higher, but from a multiple perspective and from a risk reward opportunity moving forward, the stock might be as cheap as it's ever traded from that perspective. So that's a great example. Simon, let's uh, let you kind of lead the mailbag segment here. We have the first question here from Aaron. Do you want to take this one? Yeah, definitely. And before I get started with Aaron, thank you to everyone who's sending us emails via our website. I mean, we do get to all of them. Sometimes we're a bit behind, but we try to reply to at least everyone. We may not put all the questions on the mailbag episodes, but we do appreciate uh, you guys, you, you know, the engagement and all the good questions that we're getting. And Simon, that is the Canadian Investor Podcast.com, right? 
Yeah, exactly. TheCanadianInvestorPodcast.com. It's a long URL, but it's, it's fairly easy to remember. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have used it. So uh, if you want to send us a question, definitely uh, you can use it as well. So now, like you said, question from Aaron. Hey guys, been listening to the podcast since early summer and been trying to get more up on stocks and appreciate all the work uh, you're doing. Well, first of all, Aaron, thank you very much for that. I first dipped my toes in the water back in 2012 when I bought $10,000 of Take-Two Interactive at a little more than $11 a share. I listened to my coworkers' advice and at the time and sold it at $14 a share and waited for the dip, which unfortunately never happened. After that lesson, I decided I needed to learn more before getting back into things. I'm a gamer and I wanted to get your opinion on Sony Group. We did cut the question a little bit because I was quite long, but that was the, the most important part that I thought. And yeah, definitely, I think Take-Two Interactive performed quite well over the years. But, you know, you have to learn a lesson. And at the same time, you still made decent amount of profits, even though you, you sold uh, probably a bit too early considering where they're at right now. So let's look at Sony. I'll start off looking just a few general things when I had a look at their financials. When people are looking at their financials, keep in mind this is a Japanese company, so it's always referring to yens. I'm not going to specify specific numbers here, just a few percentages. Revenues have stalled a bit over the past five years for Sony, so that right there is a bit of a red flag for me. Free cash flow has been pretty stable over the past four years, although it hasn't really grown. The good news is they don't have that much debt on the balance sheet, which is always something I like to see. Overall, Sony has six segments, game and network services, music, pictures, electronic products and solution, imaging and sensing solutions, and the last one, financial services. Looking at their results, you'll notice that their margins are not very high. They're about 26.5%. This was based on their last full year results. The two largest segments are game and network services and electronic products and solution. So even the motion picture segments, when you think about it, it's something that can really be hit or miss in terms of return on investment. So it does make sense that their margins are a bit lower. There's a lot of hardware here as well. So you're looking at a company that relies a lot on hardware sales to make their profit. And don't get me wrong, like Braden said, they do have, I think they have a lot of great products. We're using their headphones. I just bought a TV. It's a Sony as well. One thing I did notice, I was interested in seeing what management said. Uh, they did mention that they are expecting lower sales in the electronic products and solution segment due to supply shortages and especially semiconductors. So that's something I'm constantly looking for right now, especially for businesses that are producing goods that would involve microchips or semiconductors. Overall, my take is I'm not that interested because the margins aren't great. Like, they make great products, like I just said, but unless you have a brand that's solid like Apple, you're going to have a hard time with getting really great margins on your hardware. There might be some upside here of their segment, but I wouldn't put them in the same basket as a Take-Two Interactive, EA, Activision, Blizzard, or Tencent. So, Brayden, do you want to add a bit on that? Yeah, there's a few things to deconstruct. They bought 10000 of Take-Two Interactive at 11 and sold it for $14 a share because their friend told them to sell it. And then she waited for a dip, he or she waited for a dip to buy back in, which 
it never dipped. Okay, so there's two things happening there. One, your coworker told you to sell the stock on what basis? Take Two Interactive was developing some great games, and you clearly knew about the business. They had the fantastic GTA series and the Red Dead Redemption series. There was a cultural phenomenon with these games. So you sold it on what basis? The fundamentals seemed solid. And then it goes back to the previous discussion that we just had, which is price anchoring. So you're waiting for a dip because you, you know, you, you first had it $11 per share. It just doesn't matter anymore what that cost basis was. It's over. It's gone. Like from a behavioral perspective, throw it away emotionally. That does suck, but perhaps take two is a great opportunity as we speak right now. I think a lot of the game publishers are. Back to Sony. They do have some interesting tech and competitive advantages, especially in the imaging and sensing solution segment. Uh, Really cool business. But for the major narrative on Sony right now is that the console cycle just straight up sucked. There's no other way to put it. The console cycle flopped. It sucks for Sony with PlayStation, and it sucked with Microsoft for Xbox. The thing about Microsoft with Xbox is if the Xbox segment is weak on Microsoft, it gets thrown under the rug. No one cares because you have this cloud Azure business growing at 50%, and the entire system sales on Microsoft are well over 20%. For a business that's $2.5 trillion in market cap, it's just a small piece of the pie. So with this console cycle weakness, Sony, it really hurts the business, right? So I don't play video games anymore. I really wish I had time to do that. But perhaps this is poor anecdotal evidence again. But the console cycle and hype for the latest PlayStation and Xbox just completely evaporated. So much effort from an SG&A perspective. So when I say SG&A, I mean sales, general, and administrative expenses on the income statement, SG&A. So much SGNA goes into this console cycle. And if you can't get the product into consumers' hands who want it now, it's a tricky environment to navigate. So as an investor, it's definitely not on my watch list. As a consumer, I love Sony. They make great electronics. We're both wearing the Sony WH-1000 XM4 headphones that cost 350 bucks at Best Buy or, or Amazon in Canadian dollars. You know, I value a, a good pair of headphones, not only for the podcast, but when I'm, I'm in deep work, I need some good, comfy headphones to get me going. And these Sony XM4s are unreal. So uh, I recommend them. Yeah. And just to show, these are really good quality headphones and they cost $350. And they're pretty similar to the new Apple headphones that came out wireless. A lot of similar features, but the Apple ones are selling for about like three times the price. And that's just kind of reinforces what I was saying in terms of pricing power. I mean, I love getting good value. That's why I love these headphones. They're great. But another thing to add on to what Braden said is the music and pictures segment, um, they could be in for a lot of disruption. Music, first of all, there's a lot of movement going on there. We're seeing Spotify. uh, They're starting to get more and more leverage. So I don't know how much that will impact Sony Music going forward. That's the other thing that concerns me. And the picture. So motion pictures landscape. Theaters are not back to what they were. So how does the box office affect the revenues there? Are they going to do a hybrid kind of box office, streaming, pay a premium to watch a movie before it releases? So to me, there's a lot of question marks around that part of the business as well. I'm not sure where they fit into the the landscape there. 
to be quite frank, with movie streaming and their production of films with the Sony pictures. Yeah, I, I don't. It's just a, you know, it's still a, it's kind of a question mark. There are some question marks and a lot of this business is just stalled out right now. And I think that the share price probably reflects that. So let's kick it off to the next one. We had a question about DFN.to. It's this dividend high yielder co which basically holds a basket of companies. Do you want to talk about this? Because we've had, this is a good example of questions that we get all the time, not only from email, from Twitter, from whatever, saying, hey, can you check out this dividend company that's yielding me over 10% on the dividend? What's the story here? And usually it's the same story. So what what's happening here? Yeah. So this is a question from John. Like you said, John, I would love to hear your opinion on DFN.to. It was yielding around 15% at the time. Is it too good to be true? I love your podcast. I love your long-term approach to investing. Well, thank you, John. Like Braden said, for me, it's always a red flag. Anytime I see something that's like, let's be honest, double digit, I like will not even look at it. We had the question, so I figured you know I'd have a look into it. So this one is a bit of a nod case. So DFN.to is called Dividend 15 Split Corporation. They offer two types of shares, preferred shares and class A shares. It's basically a holding company that pays a monthly dividend. If you look at their investor relations page, what they state is basically they own the highest yielding Canadian company. So some names here is BMO, Bank of Nova Scotia, BCE, CIBC, Enbridge, Manulife, National Bank, Sun Life, Thompson Reuters, TransAlta, like a lot of the classic Canadian listed high yielder. It's banks, insurance, and telcos yeah. and the big yielders. Exactly. And People may look at these, well, why the hell are they paying 15% dividend? Well, the reason why they can pay such a high dividend is because they use the covered call strategy and they can use the premium to increase the dividend. So I've talked about this strategy before, covered call ETFs. If you go to episode 93, so if you go on our website, thecanadianinvestorpodcast.com, look up episode 93, I explain how they work. But Essentially, you get a higher yield, yes, but you limit the upside. And oftentimes, well, they always tend to trail their equivalent non-covered call if you're looking at ETFs. Personally, I would not invest into that. If you want a nice dividend, honestly, just choose the name that they're investing in and just own them outright. You won't get as high of a dividend, but at least you're going to get the upside of capital gains here. Where at the covered call, you really limit your capital gains upside. And that's one of the reasons it hasn't performed well. If you want to own those Canadian high-yielding companies because you are seeking dividend income in retirement, perhaps you own some of the names in here on their own. Don't own them in this this weird split corp. Look, the reality here is that the share price on DFN is down 25% over the past five years. It basically bleeds value over time and it's lost more than that if you go to like a 10-year view, but it pays this huge 15% dividend. So, you know, new investors might go, oh, this is great. The yield trap alarm should be sounding as soon as you see something like this. There's just nothing to say here. No, thank you. A question here from Curtis. First of all, very big fan of the show. Thanks, Curtis. I'm starting my transition into retirement. Oh, congratulations. 
have a few more years before I enjoy the fruits of my investing. I have a defined contribution pension, which maxes out my RSP. I'm now playing catch up with my TFSAs, and I'm looking at using a portion of my TFSA for a monthly passive income. Do you have any recommendations on finding out the best stocks or ETFs that pay a monthly dividend? Thanks, Curtis. I guess I'll start off with this one. First of all, uh, I think it's a great approach, Curtis, that you want to maximize your TFSA contribution since your, uh, I'll say, DC pension, so defined contribution pension, will be taxable income when you start uh, drawing on it. The first thing here that you have to be aware, you probably are already, but for those who aren't, Canadian companies will oftentimes be more attractive when you're looking at dividend payers because there's not a withholding tax that's 15%. Specifically in a TFSA should be mentioned. Specifically in a TFSA, exactly, that would be applied to U.S. stocks. So withholding tax is simply the U.S. government saying that they keep that 15% and then the rest of the dividend is paid out in your TFSA. It does not apply to RSPs because there's a reciprocal agreement between both countries, but because the TFSA is not considered a retirement account, then the withholding tax applies. In my view, it doesn't mean that you can't have U.S. dividend payers here, but if you're looking at two very similar business and one is Canadian and one is U.S., I would definitely give the edge to the Canadian company with all other things being equal. So if you're looking at a tiebreaker here, the Canadian one would make much more sense. Having said that, 15% is just 15%. It's not a crazy high percentage and it can make sense to add a few U.S. dividend payers there. Remember that if you do get capital gains on those U.S. stocks, that's still tax-free. So that's still a big advantage of having it in the TFSA. An easy way to find stocks is using a... uh, screener based on dividend and add a few other qualities like revenue growth, for example. If you're using yield, like we mentioned in the previous uh, question, be careful screening on too high a yield. So you'll want to use something that's pretty reasonable. That way you'll get more quality businesses as a whole. Make sure with whatever result you get that you do research a company. Another way you can find companies that's fairly easy without using a screener is just looking at ETFs that focus on dividend payers. One that I find very interesting for US listed company is the Noble ETF, so NOBL, which is the ProShares S&P 500 dividend aristocrat. And just look at the holdings and start your research from there. You can use other types of ETFs as well that pay dividend. That would be a good starting point just looking at the constituents. Yield is important when looking for income, but making sure that the dividend is sustainable is extremely important. And we talk about that all the time. So you'll want to look at the payout ratio here. Make sure you also get some diversification in there because companies that pay a nice dividend tend to be heavier in certain sectors or industries than others. Uh, With a previous question, the names that I rifled up kind of give you an indication. A lot of banks in there. Yeah, well put. I mean, the TFSA is an incredibly good account unless you're owning U.S. banks or energy high yielders type of companies then those are probably best suited in RSP. But using your TFSA in a non-registered account, those two are good if you have a pension, like you mentioned. So this is not investment advice. You know, you got to do your own for your own situation. But if you have a contribution, defined contribution pension plan, a TFSA is the way to go just because it becomes tax inefficient if you're using an RSP at the same time. Right, Simon? Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And oftentimes, if you have a generous DC pension or even defined benefit pension, if they're generous, you usually won't have that much room to contribute to an RSP anyways. So the TFSA kind of becomes the default option. And if you do have room, you know, make sure you have a good sense of what your income will be once you start drawing on it. Because again, we're talking about tax brackets here. And then, you know, you could end up paying quite a bit of taxes thinking that you were just deferring for when you would pay less taxes. Obviously, like Braden said, this is not investment advice. Every situation is different, but these are all things to to keep in mind. Curtis did mention that he was asking for some stocks that pay monthly dividends. Two thoughts there. One, don't worry about that so much. If it pays a quarterly dividend, that's very normal and very fine. If you really want one that pays a monthly dividend, cap REIT, the Canadian apartment REIT, which is a residential real estate investment trust, they're about $10 billion in market cap. They do pay a monthly dividend. It is a well-run company. It's a very solid REIT, best-in-class real estate investment trust, and they do pay a monthly dividend. So if you're looking for monthly dividends, you're mostly going to be looking at real estate investment trusts. That's very typical for them to pay a monthly distribution. With all these questions, we always get so many questions on dividends and, you know, like Simon, it's just never ending, right? And it's an important thing to take away here is if you have a longer horizon and you're not like Curtis stepping into retirement, do not base your investment thesis or strategy based on if a company pays a dividend. I, I'm done saying this, but like I probably I'll probably say it a million more times on this podcast, but unless you're in retirement or like a year away from retirement, stop PSA, stop just basing your entire investment strategy on dividends. It's a terrible way to go. You're gonna end up with mediocre companies because some of the best companies in the world today don't pay dividends. Does that mean that they're bad investments because they don't pay dividends? Absolutely not. Some of them will crush the index without paying dividends. And I think that many Canadians need to start recognizing that. And the sooner they do, the better they will do. Yeah. The only thing I would probably say, I would probably say within five years of retiring, for me, like people may want to focus a bit more on on dividend. But I do agree with you. And I forgot to answer that part of the question, the monthly dividend. That would not be a consideration for me at all. Just plan your dividend payments, build a calendar, just know when the quarterly dividend is happening. Some are semi-annual. You know, you can have a few monthly dividend in there, but that really, if you're using that as a criteria, you'll basically end up only with REITs, like Braden said. You'll only own real estate investment trusts. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well put. Yeah. So just back what I was saying is I love getting paid dividends. I own companies that pay dividends. That's not the reason I own them. And I think that that's really important to know. I see all the time guys in their 20s, girls in their 20s that own a portfolio of just strictly Canadian high yield dividend payers. Don't do that. (laughs) Simon, don't do that. That is not a good way to, to uh, own just, an investment portfolio. Just mix it up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just own it. You know what you should do instead of that? Just go buy an S&P 500 index fund. Go buy XUU, which is BlackRock's S&P total market index fund that owns US stocks and you will do much better. All right. Here we got a question from Melanie. Last question for the show today. Melanie says, hey, love the show. 
Thanks for all that you do. Not a problem, Melanie. We, we do this so that you guys can learn. Not sure if you've covered this or not. Maybe I haven't listened far back enough, but was hoping if you could cover how to evaluate an exchange-traded fund, ETF. I have a good knowledge of what to look for in investing in individual companies, but I don't know how to evaluate ETFs. Thanks in advance, Melanie. Well, thanks for the kind words, by the way. And I can start with this one, Simon, which is with ETFs, don't overthink it. Really don't overthink it. There are going to be a multitude of ETF providers that provide similar products, and they're basically competitors of each other. So I just mentioned XUU, which is the total US market from BlackRock. Vanguard has one called VUN. And it's the exact same product. They cover the exact same index. I think it's like 0.01% difference between the two on the fee. Don't overcomplicate this stuff. So when it comes to ETFs, if they're not covering a broad index fund and they're covering some sort of thematic investment strategy, look at the holdings. Just Google the name of the ETF and you can find the holdings very quickly. They must be listed It is a requirement of the ETF legally to operate that they have the holdings listed on the site. And so you can find exactly what they are and what percentage of the fund they make. So when you're investing in an ETF, it is no different than investing in an individual stock, except for now you're buying a big basket of individual stocks. Don't forget when you buy an exchange traded fund, you are buying the companies that exist inside of the ETF. It's not some magical financial instrument that just goes up and down for no apparent reason. It moves because the underlying assets of the the companies that it holds, it moves from that perspective on a long view. So look at the holdings and look at the fee. The the thing that you're looking for is a management expense ratio or MER. Try to buy, if it's covering a broad index, try to pay less than 0.1%. I think XUU I just listed is like 0.06%. So that's really, really cheap. That's what you want to own. And if it's a thematic type one, I wouldn't spend more than 0.4 or 0.5% on the, uh, the ETF fee. I think that's a great breakdown that you said. So I think, yeah, the holdings, the fees, an easy way to find the holdings is just type in the fun facts with the ticker of the ETF. And you'll find it very easily. And like Braden said, I think it'll vary depending if you're looking at index ETF or if you're looking at an actively managed one. I'm a bit more flexible on the fees for the actively managed. I'll probably, depending if it's very niche or not, I could go up to like 0.7070 basis point. That would be really on the high end. But for the most part, like Braden said, you'll probably be able to find some around the, you know, 30 to 40 basis point. But aside from that, not much more to add. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's fair. Don't overcomplicate the exchange traded fund purchasing. The whole reason you're buying it is for absolute simplicity and keep it that way. Exactly. Yeah. You're, you're, <laughs> that's you're it. buying it to keep things simple. Mm-hmm. So uh, definitely treat it as such. Thanks so much for listening and thanks for the feedback. We try to do one of these mailbag episodes at least you know once a quarter and it's helpful to see feedback on what the kinds of questions and the things that people are battling with and it gives us good ideas for stuff to talk about on the show and we see some of the same stuff come up over time but we see a lot of new ideas come up as well and I think it's important that 
we touch on them. So keep sending some of those questions. As for what we were talking about, owning companies that are great and have prospects and don't just bleed out and pay a, a dividend, Stratosphere Investing covers 60 plus high quality companies on Canadian markets and US markets. You can go to stratosphereinvesting.com. You can see all of my research and the companies that I buy and the companies that I research myself full-time at stratosphereinvesting.com. And if you want to leave an episode question or you want to leave anything at all, any feedback at all, you can go to thecanadianinvestorpodcast.com. And there's lots of useful links there as well. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in a few days. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.